everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right, today's podcast is obviously on the FTX scandal fall. I don't know what to call call it, and Sam Bankman. Now, just to give you a brief background, uh, a few days ago, I think it was in mid-November, I came across. Uh, and an uh, article or an essay that was written by Ashley in the tablet magazine, uh, the one you see on the screen, and and I read it. Now, full disclosure, I was reading on this whole thing, and I was not able to understand it. And the more I read it, and like this is one of those rare sc- scandals or scams where you go WTF and say, what, this can happen too? And then when Ashley's piece uh, came out and I immediately reached out to Ashley, I was like, my mind doesn't work. <laughs> so I I told him, you have to come and explain this, this shit to me. And Ashley happily agreed. So buddy, welcome back to the podcast. It's always nice to talk to you. Thank you, Kusha. All right, uh, Ashley, maybe we'll start here for the uninitiated who maybe do not know what the hell the scandal or scam is. So so we start with the working assumption that nobody knows what the scam is and start there. First, explain to everyone what the hell happened. Um, basically, what looks like you had this cryptocurrency exchange, FTX, which was the one of the big boys uh, out of like two or three of the big players in crypto exchange uh, where you could go trade crypto online and, and a kind of uh, nice interface that was the big selling point it was the, it was previously kind of hard to do it on some of these websites and this website ftx comes along and you could go put money into a trade and then ftx becomes like the like brand brand name of the nike of um, crypto exchanges, partnerships with major celebrities, with news organizations, with politicians. I mean, they really didn't hold back. So what ended up happening, it turns out, is that FTX was illiquid, meaning there wasn't enough money in their coffers, in their own accounts to cover the obligations that they had, including and primarily to their own customers. So the money that you saw as a number in your FTX account wasn't actually there. And it turned out what they were really doing, it seems, allegedly, I'll say for the lawyers, is they were using that money deposited by FTX customers to invest it in the founder of FTX, who's a man named Sam Bankman-Fried. He ran a private crypto investment firm called Alameda Research, and they were taking the money out of FTX, out of customers' own accounts and investing it for their own private purposes through Alameda research in a variety of different kinds of investments. Then it all kind of blew up when um, a different crypto exchange decided to liquidate its holdings of FTX's own currency, FTT. That set a um, domino effect in motion that led to the collapse of FTX within a day or two, not much more than that. Yep. When I was going through this, like, uh, obviously I, everything we say has to be caveated by the word allegedly, because that's just yeah. the way the cookie crumbles these days. But I mean, this looks like your classic Ponzi scheme. 
I don't know what else to call it. I mean, as I was reading this and I was trying to understand, I was like, wait, this can happen too. And and my, my I still cannot digest that this happened. Like, how how the hell did this? This was happening in broad daylight. Like, I was when I was doing my research, and I don't know if you came across this thread on social media too. This was like uh, their bankruptcy court filing, and and I went through this thread, and I want to share this with people. How the hell can they do this? Like, this is there. So this is uh, on Twitter. Somebody shared. This is the reimbursements over chat, and a random manager would accept or reject those reimbursement with an emoji. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it was all they ran. They ran the entire business on on Google Sheets. Like the, the, was... this, this entire thread is insane. They yeah. they loaned uh, the director of engineering Nishad Singh five hundred and forty three million. Uh, barely any records were kept. Most decisions were made over chat, over chat. Yeah, and and messages are deleted. I mean, I, I was just going through these things. They don't have any proper records of anything. This was the killer. Corporate funds were used to purchase personal use real estate and employees and executives put their names on homes purchased with company funds. What the yeah. hell? How, yeah. how can something like this happen in broad daylight and nobody observes it? Like, is it, is this very common? Um, I don't know. I wonder. I mean, I think it's a hallmark of financial scandals where you see the founders using corporate funds to fund their own lifestyle. I mean, the, a great example was DeLorean, the car maker. That's exactly what he was doing that got him into so much trouble. He was using corporate funding from investors that was meant to build and run the factory to buy art and buy Ferraris and buy mansions. And it's one of those, like, it, it's almost like if you have fraud, this is one of those pieces that almost always exists where these, these, really high profile flamboyant founders, they pull money out of the company to, to run their own lifestyle in, in a very outsized. And it, what it shows is that it was, never, it was never really about the business. Because you look at Elon Musk, who did the opposite. Elon Musk was taking money out of his own personal bank account to fund Tesla when Tesla got into trouble um, in you know 2000, whatever it was, 2012, 13, when, when it was touch and go. He was... He would put his entire fortune on the line to keep the company afloat, to make payroll. These guys did the exact opposite. They raided the corporate coffers in order to basically have a good time, live in a $40 million, $40 million penthouse in the Bahamas. And um, how often does that go on? Who knows? You know, Probably more than most of us assume. But with crypto, you know, this was a, a company run out of the Bahamas, previously run out of Hong Kong. It, would, it was not regulated by a, a responsible financial regulator, in part because the regulations that have been developed to deal with crypto are seem to be behind the curve. And there has not been, uh, in the United States at least, a, a robust uh, regula regulatory framework for crypto. So a lot of these companies basically end up offshore and then they do what they want. And that's what they did. Yeah, and this leads us to the dark and larger question about financial regulation in general, where 
this is the classic dichotomy, right, between uh, free market principles and uh, and regulation, because free market principles are always like less regulation is always better. But then, wh- where do we parse this? Like, I'm pretty much for free markets. I'm always for lesser regulation. I've always been uh, libertarian. But the point is, when when something like this comes about, a person like me does not know how to answer it. Like, like, how do I explain this to someone as someone who genuinely supports libertarianism? The government should pretty much stay out of my life. But then somebody comes and in evolutionary terms, I would call this the free rider problem. This is a free rider, right? This riding on the system. Yeah. You know, I think it's um, I think it's one of these things where the pendulum swings too far in either direction, because on the one hand, you get such an incredible amount of overregulation in so many economies and so many governments that we end up saying, just stay out of it because you're making it worse. I mean, I know as, a, as an example, in the UK um, right now where I am, there the, the country is facing basically a collapse of its health system and sort of the teetering of its economic system as well. It, it's, it is in a very bad economic situation. My wife the other day, wanted to get a goldfish for our children and called the pet shop to get a goldfish and a fish bowl. As you know, we grew up with fish bowl, goldfish and goes in a fish bowl. They refused to sell us a fish bowl. It's illegal, illegal to put a goldfish in a fish bowl in the United Kingdom. And it is regulated. This is the kind of thing that they're worried about while their, their health system is collapsing around them. So what happens is governments go all in on minutia. How wide can someone's front lawn be? How much water can they give it? Are you parked in the right place? Can you build a building here? Can just an endless amount because it, it captures power for them, for the bureaucracy. And in the meantime, they don't focus on the big stuff. They're so lost in this, in the nothingness of bureaucracy that they cannot do the essential stuff anymore. And I think that's probably what happened here. I mean, I don't know that much about federal American regulatory practices regarding crypto. I do know that the United States government has made so many federal laws and regulations that nobody can actually count them. Somebody tried to count them, an academic team tried to find actually what is the number, how many federal laws are there? They couldn't get it. They stopped in the thousands. This is just too many. So I think that this is the tension. We're focusing all of our resources on, on essentially valueless uh, on a dr- things that drag on not just the economy, but on our personal lives, while these governments completely fall down in what actually matters, like regulating a financial ex- exchange like, like the one FTX was. Yeah, now let's get into the most horrific part of this entire scandal, other than the scandal itself, which is where we come into uh, your uh, your article and, and many other things. Where, By the way, another article that I would like to say that I found very interesting, which, uh, uh, which is not to do with the role of the media, but explaining uh, the whole scam itself or scandal itself is this one was an opinion piece on Coindesk by David Z. Morris and you know, he says FTX's collapse was a crime, not an accident. This is a very interesting article. It's a very detailed article on on how the whole thing has actually happened. I, I would highly recommend everybody to go and read this one too. Like when I read this, I was like, damn, these, <laughs> these 
these people what the hell were they doing and it's yeah. like just as someone you know who has worked hard all his life has tried to make an honest living and i just look at all this and i was like yeah but now let's let's get into there are so many facets to this ashley the one one is this man and his pr campaign uh, now i'm focusing on sam bankman fried uh the other is uh his relationship with the media and the media portrayal of the same that is now it's a sub uh, it's a subset of the pr campaign but it has to be dealt with separately and then the third is is his nonchalance like he he mm. he just he comes across as somewhat like it's it's almost as if a young kid somebody goes like you know it's like our mother is going my mother going to me and telling kushal you've been a bad boy sorry right. mommy <laughs> that's right. all that's all i think yeah i messed that's up I, as, yeah, yeah i'm sorry mom Oops. i messed up yeah, yeah. it's it, like so let's first start with his relationship with politics now okay i, I don't know actually if you if you actually heard this but i want to play this like these things are not normal this guy was the second highest donor everybody knows about it to the republic uh, to the democrats everybody knows about yeah. it that's public record but when i heard this again through twitter so you know bless twitter for being a great platform i did not understand how to react so this is a direct quote shared by brendan fisher from the man himself and i just want to play this for the benefit of our listeners what the hell is going on over here i Donated to both parties. They donated about the same amount to both parties this year. That was not generally known because, despite Citizens United being literally the highest-profile Supreme Court case of the decade, and the thing everyone talks about when they talk about campaign finance, for some reason, in practice, no one can possibly fathom the idea that someone in practice actually gave dark. So I don't know. All my Republican donations were dark. Is your own scam? And the reason was not for regulatory reason. It's just reporters freak the fuck out if you donate to a Republican. They're all super liberal and didn't want to have that fight. So I made all the Republican ones start. Um, but I was, whatever, second or third biggest Republican donor this year as well. But also, it was all for the primary. They didn't give anything to general options. They don't give a shit about general options. It's not what matters. Like, it's the primaries where, the, where you put candidates against bad. So... the only reason he kept his republican donations dark and in his own words he says i was the third highest donor for the republicans the second highest donor for the democrats and the only reason he kept his donations dark was that in his words liberal journalists and people of liberal leaning freak the fuck out that's his explanation <laughs> yeah he he's not wrong and he's got a he's got a very good sense of um of how the media works i mean it's i mean you don't you don't really need to be a media expert to know that that is the case but a lot of the time you know people who are dealing with the media want to pretend that it's not that way and he didn't need to pretend it to be the case partly because he was giving everybody so much money i mean the sums are spectacular it's it every time you hear another figure about the amount of money Sam Bankman-Fried was giving to whoever it was it's just your jaw drops a little farther open and you know it it begs the question 
or it, or it prompts the question, I should say, um, why was he giving them all this money? <laughs> and I think the answer speaks for itself. You're, it's a, you're buying influence. I mean, the, there's not really much, uh, there's not another conclusion you can draw if you're giving both political parties huge sums of money. It, it's not because you believe in the pr one, one party's principle over the other party. It's because you want to influence them to do your bidding. And they did. Oh boy, they did. And <laughs> so now we get into the media role. The, the I don't have words, but I'll let you explain. Let's start with the, okay, this is your favorite media house, <laughs> the New York Times. Yeah. Can, can you tell everybody how the New York Times has been covering this, uh, I don't know, shit show for a while now? The New York Times, I mean, I think the, the actually the best way to, to think about how they covered him was how they covered him after the scandal blew up. And they did what was became a very uh, hotly debated and what many people called a puff piece about him. And it was really kind of soft, really took off the those hard edges, those jagged edges about this character and kind of cast him as this guy who just kind of like, very much what, what Sam Beckman had later said, including directly to the New York Times when he went to their deal book summit um, last, uh, whatever that was, last week, where he was just saying he kind of stumbled into this. And that's what the New York Times actually reported about him. So the piece that they choose to do, the first big piece after the scandal erupts, is not an investigative piece to say, okay, well, it's probably time to unpack this, to look at exactly what happened, who was hurt, how did it all go down? It was a piece about a young guy who really didn't know what he was doing, got, got himself into uh, a bit more trouble than he was prepared to take on. And this was just like something that people could not understand. How could the New York Times do that? But then it, what, what you do is you go back in the New York Times archive and you look at the coverage over the last two years or so, that's what the coverage was. It was building up the myth. It was calling him the emperor of crypto. It was talking about this boy genius who was out to save the world through effective altruism. It was Kara Swisher gushing over him, who she's usually pretty harsh when it comes to tech figures, not this time. Um, and then it was, you know, of course, it spread throughout the media. It wasn't just the New York Times. It was every major news outlet including many of the outlets that took significant sums of money from him um, and had not really disclosed that in their coverage of him. It, you know, you probably could have found it in other places if you were able to dig for it. But to dig for it, you would have to know that they took money. So you would read an article in Vox or in whatever, ProPublica Pro or something, about Sam Bankman-Fried, and it would tell the same story, the story of this just genius who wore terrible clothes and loved to save the world and blah, 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 was so modest and drove a Toyota Corolla. And it didn't talk about the $40 million penthouse he was living in the Bahamas. Certainly never talked about the fact that there was no board for this billion dollar company. Um, none of that stuff. But they also didn't talk about the fact that in Vox's case, they took huge sums of money for him. Huge. He pledged them $5 million. For a media organization, that's like the in, a, in tech, that's like the equivalent of fifty million dollars. Like it's just enormous. So 
major conflicts of interest, the clear emergence of a narrative pointing only in one direction. And this is the kicker for me, absolutely zero investigation over two years, zero, nothing. Meanwhile, when you look at New York Times coverage of Elon Musk over the last two or, or 10 years, you could choose your own time frame. It is relentlessly brutal. It is relentlessly negative. It is investigating. It's pulling in all of their resources to tackle this individual, especially since he took over Twitter. But Sam Beckman-Fried got the complete opposite treatment by the media. You know what shocks me is this specific quote that the Wall Street Journal, in, in, in by the way, which was a shit article by the Wall Street Journal, and I'll share the title later on, but this is Sam Bankfried. Quote, I feel bad for those who get fucked by it. By this dumb game we woke Westerners play, where we, we say all the right shibboleths, and so everyone likes us. Yeah, I was just, and this was a private chat that was leaked. I clearly remember somebody with shared a reporter, a Vox reporter. Yeah, yeah, a Vox reporter <laughs> that, that leaked <laughs> leaked this private chat, and yeah. and 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 now just look at. I mean, what the hell is this headline? Like, this is what the journalist or the person who wrote this article in the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> found the problematic bit in what Donald Trump and Sam Bankman Freed have in common. This is yeah. all they could think of. Of course. This is what the, the Wall Street Journal could come up with. This is their great analysis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it, it's, I, I don't understand that quite from the journal of all places because the journal should have been exactly the, the outlet doing the financial investigation that they, they never seem to have done. I don't know why then they would come out with an opinion piece talking about Donald Trump. Of course, the media wants to connect everything to Donald Trump. Um, and if they can't connect it to Donald Trump, it's like it didn't exist. But, um, you know, this is, this is the media that we have today. The, 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 for me, the corollary to, to the media, the media's, I would say, gross misconduct regarding FTX. The flip side, the, the silver lining in the cloud is that we saw what I've come to call decentralized media in action. We saw Twitter accounts and Coindesk and um, a few other small players like that bring down the giant in literally two days. In two days, a tweet by... Richard Chen, the crypto venture capitalist, a tweet by CZ of Binance, and an article by Coindesk, and then a few other pieces by other, other players on Twitter, independent players, mind you, brought down the behemoth that the media, they, they slayed the monster the media had created for two years, and they did it in two days. That's really impressive. And I think that's a sign of where things are headed with the media. Yeah, but I, you know, why I, I am sharing all of this as a visual evidence, because sometimes people need to see things to realize how full of shit the media is. Like, I know we, yeah. how the hell could the New York Times do something like this? Yeah. How could they do something like this? 
Yeah, and they went through with it, as we know. I mean, they actually kept, they actually kept the engagement. But I think that that to me is kind of the point. It's like the times the times had made the times and and the rest of them had made the monster. Right, this was their creation. It was their baby. They he doesn't exist without them. He doesn't exist even with the Super Bowl ads with Tom Brady and all that brand nonsense. It doesn't mean anything if the media hates you. And it means everything if the media loves you and the media loved him. There was this, there was their child, their brainchild. So of course you're going to protect your child. Why? Because what the child does reflects on the parent. And if the child is made to seem like this evil uh, sociopath who was Bernie Madoff in crypto clothing, then what does the media look like? They look, they look, like not just fools, they look like worse than fools. They look like they were accomplices to the fraud. So what's the response? Fix it. Rescue him. Rescue the reputation. Preserve the image. Talk to him. Have a conversation. Ask him, why didn't you know what you were doing? How did you not, how did you fail to see that this would happen? Don't ask him, when did you become a criminal? They didn't ask that. They asked him, how did you, F up so badly. They 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 echo his own message. And it again, it softens the edge. It it blunts the anger that people have against him because it changes. He's still manipulating the media. That that's the thing. And they're still manipulating us. That's the interesting thing. It didn't stop when it all blew up. It just changed gear. It just switched direction a little bit. You know what the worst part was? There was a cost to attend, twenty four hundred American dollars. Yeah, there has. When I just read that photo, and I was like, like seriously, my life is such a waste. <laughs> like, what the hell am I doing? I mean, I gotta find something as ridiculous as the, and then when like I have to share these things for my viewers is because they should realize. What is wrong with society? Like mm -hmm. when they do this, like what the hell? On behalf of everybody here and on behalf of the public, I want to thank you for engaging in it at a time. So thank you so very, very much. Um, <laughs> is this all they could think of? It's not. It's it's not that. It's all they could think of. The, that was the most brilliant part, right? If you have, you've got a live audience of of intelligent, at least theoretically, intelligent people applauding, right? That's an incredible photo op. When what other what other opportunity would someone who has potentially, allegedly, committed mass level fraud, massive fraud? What other occasion would there be for him to have a round of applause by an audience in New York on a stage that is being hosted by Andrew Ross Sorkin with other global leaders? You are just saying to the world, hey, this guy's not so bad, right? Let's clap. He's not as bad as you all think. Actually, he's kind of good. He's brave. You see, he's kind hearted. He's honest. He showed up. His lawyer said no, but he said yes. That's the message that you were being given in that clip. And it works. It works even on those of us who thinks it doesn't work. That's the crazy part.
And and then as if this shit show is not enough, then he goes, uh, what's that, Stephanopoulos who interviews him? Yeah. yeah. Good morning, America. Right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's the shit show never ends. And and then no. then then they they'll have him saying lines like quote I expect I'm gonna have nothing at the end of this and like what am I supposed to feel bad for him now like oh my poor baby what's wrong with you like are they trying to create sympathy for this guy is my long story short question they're trying to create a narrative that shows him as not a sociopath and a criminal but as a hapless young brainiac altruist who made a lot of bad choices, a lot of bad choices. We, we know that narrative, the, the bad choices narrative. We've heard a lot about it in the sort of pushback against um, over-incarceration in America. You know, the guy shot someone in the head in, in a convenience store, an innocent worker, but he, it was the product of a lot of bad choices. It wasn't his fault. It was circumstance. And that's the same thing we're getting with Sam Bankman-Fried. A lot of bad choices, one after the next. They daisy-chained, they dominoed, they, they end up being something so big that he can't undo it anymore. And there you are removing all the most toxic elements of the story. You're removing all the stuff that clearly points to decision-making. Like you're not, you're not victim to circumstance and just kind of stumbling into this situation when you're taking customer money and allegedly giving $350 million of it to your employee. I mean, that's not an accident, right? You don't just forget that you did that. It wasn't just something like, oh, I, I act instead of putting it in this box, I put it in that box. And the outcome is that someone got nearly $400 million and they happen to be my friend. That's, that's crime. That's corruption in every sense of the word. So that is what they're trying to do with that. Not, not to show him as a poor baby, but to build a, a narrative about him as somebody who didn't do it intentionally so that the media therefore wasn't hoodwinked by a criminal or wasn't even more so, it wasn't a, an accomplice to a criminal, but was, they just, they just kind of missed the story because it was a hard story to get. And now they're on the story. It's a different story. Now that now they got the story, this story, now Stephanopoulos has the, got the scoop. Now Andrew Ross Serkin, they've got the scoop. The scoop is that Sam Bankman-Friedman is whatever he says he is. Who, who cares, right? It's not even a headline. It's nonsense. But again, to me, the bigger picture here is that still today, until today, it's incredible. There's not been the investigative reporting being done. That's the most mind-blowing part. Yeah, I mean, uh, for people, I'm not going to play it because I know Good Morning America is going to... Uh, strike me for copyright reasons but i want you guys to just look at this the facial expressions and i'm not going to play this because i know they'll uh, they'll strike this video but i want all of you guys to go and see this one it's good morning america george stephanopoulos which who interviews sam backman frieden is freed it, it you when you listen to the tone and tenor of this interview you know, it literally is that classic case of a three-year-old who threw something and mommy's like, oh, my poor baby. It, the way they have treated this person. Uh, now I want to, maybe the next half, we're going to focus on what does it do 
to the future of media and i want to connect it to something very important so the twitter files have been released right and like i don't know what to say like i got up today morning and my only like response to <laughs> to this uh, new twitter file supplemental by matt taibi and i'm going to connect it to the ftx thing I don't know if you went through this. Like, uh, I'm sure you must have. So I don't know how many people went through this Twitter file supplemental <laughs> that Matt Taibbi wrote about, and like, so he says here, we can tell you now the reason why they were going to do another expose, which it got released, uh, it had delayed. So the Twitter Deputy General Counsel and former FBI General Counsel Jim Baker was fired. Among the reasons. vetting of the first batch of twitter files without knowledge of new management i mean what the hell is happening and if you look at the entire twitter files saga not even a single media house of repute which is there in the mainstream has spoken about it they don't even discuss it yeah and when they discuss sam uh, spf they discuss it with kid gloves now if this is the situation ashley and you know you you are somebody who's famous now for self publishing too so it, what is the future of content creation then in this case ashley you are an established publisher you're an author you're a journalist you do independent work now how do we do this now in this case Yes, we did have a successful story where some independent people literally brought something really big down. But is that a sustainable model if we want to keep the integrity of larger institutions alive when you can pretty much buy anyone off if you have shit tons of money? I think there's going to be some kind of hybrid model as in the future. I don't think that we're looking at a at a scenario where mainstream corporate outlets begin to reform themselves in a meaningful way they, there's no incentive i mean there might be a case here or there and cnn could be we'll see what happens where cnn has undergone some major actual structural changes not not just kind of surface level it looks like there's been sort of top down um reform being initiated there partly from some uh pressure from a major investor but that's idiosyncratic that's one off because if you don't have that particular person pr- pressuring the organization in that particular way it's not going to happen there is no bottom up accountability from the media within the media so i think for the most part the media will continue to do this kind of thing they will become more and more committed to their own institutional prerogatives and prejudices and ideological ones of course as well i think that's just the reality we're not going back in time to a place where the new york times is considered um by kind of consent to be a reliable outlet or abc or cbs or nbc news in america um i think what will happen is that the void that that has been created when when they have kind of they they've the media, mainstream media has kind of pushed themselves into this corner of extreme ideological prejudice and activism that's left a lot of white space on the table on the board and that's being filled now by lots of different kinds of outlets 
you look at Coindesk. I mean, Coindesk is reputable. They broke a major story. They continued to pursue this. They're doing the investigation that the media, the rest of the media is not doing. They have just, they're, they're new, they're a new player, and they don't have the same kind of ideological commitments that the rest of the media has. So you're going to have a hybrid. You're going to have that. You're going to have um, on Twitter, you've got someone, you've got a big account called Autism Capital, who's doing a lot of investigation into SBF. That's now considered reputable. That is something that major players within the industry, within tech are relying on, people who really know. So that will be a part of this hybrid. Another part I think will be something that is more purely decentralized, where you take five people on Substack, they're all covering the same kind of stuff. Maybe they're all reporters, maybe they're trained reporters, but they don't work for a corporate media parent. And they'll say, you know what? Let's not kind of fragment this uh, picture here. Why don't we all just pool together and cover this beat? And maybe that beat is something like crime in New York City, or maybe it's a local thing in a, in a very small town, or maybe it's something within crypto, like regulation, who, who let's follow, or maybe it would have been about just FTX. Five reporters, all they do is cover FTX, doing investigatory work. They would have done for sure more good work than the entire mainstream media would or could have done in those two years. So I think there's going to be a lot of different forms of media that are appearing, uh, that will appear over the next, I don't know, as, as we're talking right now, up through the next few years coming until we see something really transformative emerge. Uh, and I think we will see that over the next five to 10 years. The, the problem I see in india and and i guess in the in the united states of america or in the western world in general this would be a lesser problem because there uh the society merely by the virtue of uh, the society being financially well off the these problems can be minimized that you can be an independent uh substack journalist like matt taibi is interestingly even uh you know, I think uh, Matt Iglesias was also with Vox, right? And then yeah. he moved out and now he is uh, probably one of the top uh, folks when it comes to Substack. Barry Weiss uh, has moved out of New York Times and she's pretty much established herself on Substack. So yeah. there, there is scope because there there are people who, who are willing to pay in the United States. Like, I'll give you an example. In India, let's say in India, you... You know, we're not at the financial level of other countries. Now, I don't know if you know about this whole wire and meta scandal that happened in India. There was this Indian portal and they just literally made shit up. They, they mm -hmm. literally made shit up. And then they eventually got caught with their pants down. You know, it takes a lot of effort to make sure that meta is on the good side of anything in general. <laughs> but they did that. They, they gave meta that moment. So... In such a scenario, in India, what happens is a lot of these media houses, they rely heavily on government funding. Let's say, you know, there is the the, yeah. the Life Insurance Corporation of India and, and you're running this media house and the LIC will stop giving you ads just like that. The government, let's say I live in Maharashtra, the province of Maharashtra or in the municipal corporation of Mumbai, they have a huge budget, the huge advertising budget. And then they, they, they control the print media like this. And in such a scenario... In India, where the problem in India is that there are amazing journalists like this guy who came on my podcast called Samarth Bansal. Brilliant journalist, you know, excellent work, truth seeker, writes a beautiful uh, uh, newsletter. And he actually explained the whole wire and meta saga. And he had even broken the previous uh, <laughs> nonsense done at the same media outlet uh, uh, then too. But the point is like, 
the issue where maybe in the united states of america you could do this where i myself am subscribed now to i i don't pay money to any mainstream media outlet i go and find good substack people and i give them money and i try to extract information from there but the point is like how do we do this at a global level then like how do we do this let's say in countries like india where if you don't have an ob van because these ob vans have a lot of monetary costs involved and only mainstream media outlets can do that kind of reportage so how do we solve that problem i think it's going to be um again hybrid so it's still the case today that you know really to cover the war in ukraine for an american audience you need a network or a major newspaper because even a even the most successful substack can't do that it's too expensive it takes too much resource so for that kind of thing they're relying on we are all relying on those kinds of organizations um with regard to how do you do it i think it's you know you just do whatever you can so that if you are an independent journalist in india and you are not able to recruit enough subscription to finance um your your life basically as a professional you don't do it in a professional capacity you you work a job and if you have an hour, 2 hours or 3 hours in the evening or afternoon or whatever whenever you can find the time that's when you do that thing and if you do that with three or four other people there might just be enough content there to deliver a good enough message consistently enough that people take you seriously and from there you know how does that monetize exactly i don't know but i do know that when enough people take somebody seriously and come to depend on them for something there is monetary value of some kind but i think we what we saw with the history of the united states is developing a decentralized approach to media and they still are, are in the process of doing it right now that's a lot of what it looked like it didn't it didn't look like someone you know you, you Barry Weiss and Matt Taibbi and Matt Iglesias and maybe five or 10 other people are really earning a good living maybe you know 30 40 50 100 of the people journalists are earning a living on Substack out of however many 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 thousands of journalists and writers on Substack there are not very many are actually making a living most of them are doing it um in concert with other things that they do so maybe they write books maybe they work jobs maybe they are who knows what it is but i think you kind of just do whatever you whatever it is you you need to do and the history of the united states the media or independent media is the same thing most most of these people who got big were started out as bloggers and they they weren't getting paid as bloggers i mean that was certainly the case i think for matt glacius some of the vox people they built up these big audiences that came to trust them and they got to a point where they could start vox and got got investment for it and started their own thing and you know it's good i don't i think where where vox has gone after that is a different story but the way that they got there is a good way get in it put the hours you can build a team around it of people who are committed to the mission and um get earn trust through your your quality and consistency over time that will that will deliver results that, and 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 eventually it comes down to that like, like and 
you made the right point that we only remember the success stories on Substack. We we yeah. we forget the large number of people that you, who even don't rise to the top on Substack. The same goes for podcasting. People don't realize they just look at Joe Rogan and his hundred million deal with Spotify. They don't realize that uh, it, even in podcasting, it's only the top five percent that really make a fantastic living. Everybody else just has a podcast as a side gig, and they don't yeah. they don't really monetize it and. Um, um, and, and and it blows my mind. Now, the last bit, uh, I don't know if you have an opinion on it. And uh, uh, what do you think this does to crypto in general? How, how much has this sullied the image of cryptocurrencies in general? The entire, uh, look, I don't say this in a facetious way because I don't, I, I genuinely don't mean to, but this entire crypto bro image that, that is out there in the, in the, in the in the landscape of ideas and like what what does this do to crypto then i think it's um i think it's probably an inflection point for crypto where we go from this kind of massive speculative bubble where i mean it was crazy i i, I was a bit i'm involved in a project that is kind of crypto adjacent and initially people were saying like oh i would explain them like okay also we'll put together a business plan they're like no 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 <laughs> That's web two. You need to think web three, which is that you put out a logo and a, put something stealth on LinkedIn and issue a coin and everyone's going to pay you. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. That that's, that's talk about a Ponzi scheme. That sounds like a Ponzi scheme. That's really what was going on in crypto for the last two, three years. It was such, it was such a gold rush. Um, it, but even that is an inappropriate term because the gold rush, at least there was gold underneath, underneath it all. This was literally nothing for, for so many of these projects. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Someone would create a logo, a name, they would issue a coin and they would take the money and then they would fold the project. And that was that. And this happened over and over. People kept investing. I think this obviously is the end of that. It's the end of the, the, um, the tulip craze of crypto. And we are probably inflecting, I think, to a point where it's going to be more more about the technology. So if there is an under underneath the soil, underneath the froth, as there was with gold, there was a, there was a mineral. I think for crypto, that mineral is technology. There's actual fascinating technology that you speak with people. And I, I speak with enough young developers, programmers, and they're really, really excited about blockchain and, and uh, related Web3 technologies. They really feel that that is where the future is. And that's, I think, why there is a future here. What we got rid of now was just the, um, you know, the, the, the BS froth, the BS speculation, just like in the, in the dot-com crash, where you would have people, some graduate students running four businesses in, in 1998, 1999, all of them financed, capitalized, and then suddenly it all went away because it, was, it, it wasn't real. What left, what was left over in 2000, 2001, et cetera, was real, was Google and was everything that came out, Facebook and whatever came after that. So I think we, we are going to inflect to the tech. And um, I think in the long term, this will be a good thing for what we call crypto. And I think we'll probably also find a better way to speak about crypto rather than using something that refers kind of, that's linked to the, the notion of the currency where the only meaningful currencies today feel like Bitcoin and Ethereum. I could be wrong. I'm not by any means an expert, but 
I think when we start talking more about Web3, more talking about underlying technologies, about the concept of decentralization, just as we are talking about decentralizing the media and how do we pull in Web3 technologies to power the decentralization of media? How, to answer your previous question, maybe there comes a time where it doesn't matter if somebody's in India, if they're reporting and they're doing investigative, hardcore data-based investigation into a company like FTX, and I'm sitting in the United States or in Holland or in Brazil or wherever, and I have a vested interest in the topic because I'm an investor, and I'm saying, yeah, I'm going to pay this guy $2 a month, and so are 8,000 people on the, the subreddit on this topic because we need this. So what, now that you're in India, has it makes no difference. Your geography makes no difference to this picture. What matters is that you are doing the good work on the right topic. So I think that's a lot of where this is going to come through as well. Yeah, I, I kind of see well, full disclosure. I have never understood this. Like, well, what the hell is that NFT thing? I have never understood that <laughs> NFT concept. It just goes above my head. I I, I yeah. really tried very hard to understand it. And if it is something very profound, I, I have no problem in accepting that I am stupid because I do not get it. I do not understand NFTs. I do not understand how they create that value. I mean, it's just a digital photo. What the hell? And 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 I don't understand it. Scarcity. That's all it is. Right? If you, I could give you a picture of Picasso, worth a hundred million dollars, the original, and I could have someone create an exact replica of it. Exact. That even a great art expert would not be able to tell the difference. One of them is worth a hundred million dollars, and one of them is worth almost nothing. Why? Because it's one of them is linked. It's linked to a chain of events that brought it to this moment. In, and we as a community believe that that chain of events holds unique value. It's our belief system. The same thing with that NFT. There was that one file that is unique. That, that's what the NFT does. It makes it unique amongst all other JPEGs. It's, it is now called a unique identifier that is bound to the file that makes it unique, that, that connects it to a chain of events that in which a community invests enough of its interest and resources that it makes it valuable. And, um, I, you know, that it's another great example. The NFT thing's a great example for what I was just talking about. Most of that, most of the kind of cosmetic value we saw with NFTs, the, the, um, the board apes being sold for millions of dollars, that's gone away. It's not coming back. Maybe in the future, there will be over time, NFT, uh, art NFT um, pieces that do rise again to that level over time. But what will happen with, with NFTs and what's already happening with NFTs is they're being used for their technological value. They're being used as a piece of technology so that if you give me a digital file, so if you give me a digital ticket, if I buy a ticket to a concert and you give me a, a file that shows a paper ticket, same problem as we had before. I could copy that file a million times and send it to all my friends and now you've all got tickets. But if it's an NFT and it's, it's un linked to a unique identifier, that's only one, it's only for me. So that's one use case for NFTs among thousands that we will see unfolding in the next months and years. And it will be the underlying technology and not the cosmetic speculative appeal that we'd seen over the last two, three years where everyone was just rushing to get in before, you know, it was really driven by, by FOMO, fear of missing out. Like it, I, if I don't get in right now, I'm going to lose that 
ability to make X number of dollars. They rushed in and a lot of those people obviously got burned. But what will come out of this is a lot of really great technology. You know, when I listen to all of this, I just realize I'm so old. I don't know. I just feel so old when I listen to things. I, I genuinely am so away from all of this. But the one thing I, I think is going to happen, which is not going to be uh, auguring well for crypto in general, and all these concepts in general is because it has happened in America and because of the just the disproportionate influence whatever America tends to have on global discourse. All other countries are going to be very conservative when it comes to crypto in general and they're going to pull back on crypto. So all the crypto for lobbyists or people who are very positive on crypto, they need to figure out how they separate the FTX saga and the crypto fall with the general imposition because people in general, they're, they're um, you know, once bitten, twice shy. It's, it's the natural way of uh, human beings. And I already see that India is clearly getting away from all of this. India has raised its hands and said, we're not getting into this. We have nothing to do with this because we already have enough, enough scams in India. We don't need to add one more scam in India. So India is not doing it. I don't know about uh, other countries. I think China is also tightening the news on many of these things. Uh, let's yeah. see where it goes. But what do you make of the future? Because at the end of the day, you just can't keep banking on America to let uh, things go, right? Um, the, you mean the future of crypto and future of uh, yeah. Web3? I think, it, I, think, I think it generally will be you know, there will be some regulation around the the financial aspect, meaning the trading uh, as as a security. Like this, these things function like securities. You would you would buy it, hold it, sell it for more, or sell it at a loss. But when you think about it as a technology, it's harder to regulate it as a technology. So if it's not if it's not connected to a a coin, if your technology is not connected to a coin, there's no reason that it needs to be, and it does fall into the Web three realm. It will be developed like any other technology um, and it will face the same challenges and headwinds. There will, of course, be a lot more regulation of anything to do with the financial element. And that will include things like trading of coins, currency. It will also include regulation of what is now known as DeFi, or decentralized finance, where people are able to loan money to other groups or other people directly without an, a centralized intermediary that I'm guessing is going to see some significant regulation to the extent that that's possible. Um, because the problem, the problem for governments with all this is and why they don't like it so much is that you don't need the government to regulate it or not regulate it. It's a computer. So if I want to set up a, a DeFi company that loans money from among po podcasters in a unique way, um, that what stops me from doing it? I guess I could end up be breaking the law if I live in this country, True. or I could go somewhere else, just like Sam Bankman-Fried did, and set it up and run it, and it really can't be stopped, um, at least not technologically. So it's going to be a, it's going to be a mixed bag. Yes, some countries will back away. I don't think you're going to have the um, I believe is El Salvador. You know these countries that are that are starting to quasi adopt Bitcoin as a, as a, as a national currency or Estonia. But I do think you are going to continue to see some countries and, and even in the United States, some United States, some States within the U S are much more friendly and are much more open to um, web three blockchain 
crypto than other states. So it's going to be case by case. China, yes, you're right. China's clamped down in a huge way. They, they've stopped. Uh, they, they no longer permit mining Bitcoin in China. And China was the biggest location of Bitcoin mining of the world because it's all the same thing. They can't control it. And China, the Chinese government really doesn't like what they can't control, like most governments. But in that case, it's a very extreme version of it. And the United States also was not very friendly towards financial elements that it can't control. It doesn't really like that. But um, again, I think we're going to be looking more towards the technology, the, the underlying technologies, and less at the um, the sort of speculative froth for the future, at least in the next few months and years. All right. Let me just ask you a question from a live viewer. First of all, I think he's read your book and he's a fan of yours. Oh, thank you. So, uh, so the question is that, like, uh, do you see any hope of, for the future in the mainstream media? I'm re kind of re re summarizing his question. Like they still try to sell uh, SBF scam as an accounting mistake, even after all of this. Do you do you have any hope of reform in mainstream media in the future? No, not not really. Um, I think there are. Um, I think there's a lot of very good reporters working for these outlets. Very good editors. I know them. I work with them, with some of them, and there are some outlets that are very good. And it also. I want to point out, it does differ from country to country. I mean, it's, I think the United States with the woke capture is particularly bad right now. I think sometimes it's better abroad. Um, but in general, no, I don't think there is really any incentive to reform because it's the incentives, it's the perverse incentives that have gotten them to this point. How do you change the incentives? There is no incentive to change the incentives because the current incentives serve everyone involved. That's the problem. That's why it's so entrenched. So I don't really see that being the case, um, not anytime soon. But um, I do think they will. We will have at least an alternative going forward. I I hope you're right because my my whole worry in this entire uh, process has been uh, the mainstream media does not realize how badly their image is hit, and it has nothing to do. With uh, and when I say mainstream media, I don't mean left wing media. I mean all media. It doesn't matter if you're CNN or Fox News. I just think they're all rubbish. <laughs> I mean, that's that's that that that's where I'm yeah. coming from, and and this is not good. I mean, my first ever podcast with you was about the truth. If you remember, the first thing I asked yeah. you ever as a question was the truth because the truth matters the most. And if we lose the truth, and if if a, a society can't can't function where people don't even trust each other. A, tr a trust deficit society is the most dangerous thing for any society. And that, that's been my biggest worry in this entire process. And, and COVID did a real number on everyone. Uh, you know, post-COVID, yeah. there was an erosion of truth. And now you have this FTX scandal. And now there is even further erosion of truth. And and you, you just see how easy it is to buy the media and and... It's really worrying, but uh, but before uh, I wrap up today's podcast, so, so any last uh, any last points that you want to say that maybe I missed out or something? Um, no, I don't think so. I, I think it's you know I think it's good to be what we're what we're doing right now, which sort of being vigilant. Like let's let's look and be honest and be open, and I think that's the way forward. And and not on the one hand to demonize the media. And on the other hand, not to consider them our savior, but to find that middle ground 
of skepticism, healthy skepticism. Sometimes that borders into cynicism, um, which is also okay. But um, yeah, I, I think I think the the positive note here is where audiences, news consumers are today. They're eager. They're leaning forward. They're asking the right questions. They are searching, and that's I think the best part of all this. Man, I I, I hope you're right because as someone who I mean, I'm a disbeliever. So the only thing I got is the truth. And sometimes when I look at all of this, I was like, where am I going to go? I don't even have a religion to fall back right. on. <laughs> like All I was left with was this stuff. And now this these things are also getting questioned. But man, Ashley, it's always been a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, when I when I read people like you or you know, when I read some other journalists, I always or authors, I always feel, okay, there's some hope left. So as always, thanks a lot for coming. And I wish you all the best, buddy. Thank you so much, Kushal. Great to see you. We'll be in touch. All right, guys, we'll wrap it up. But before we wrap it up, as always, when you look into the description of the podcast, you will find Ashley's Twitter handle. You'll find his, the link to his website. Uh, go and buy his book, The Grey Lady Winked. If you have not, you can buy other books too. But uh, all the books to buy uh, his uh, his work uh, is there in the website. So please go and support Ashley. He's a, he's a great writer, a fantastic author. I think we can all learn a lot from Ashley's conduct. And, 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 and trust me, read The Grey Lady Winked if you have not. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, you know the drill. You can support the Charvak podcast by subscribing to my channel, liking this video, leaving a comment, or you can become a member on Fanmo or YouTube or Patreon or just send your donations to UPI or buy the Charvak podcast merch. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste. Take care. Bye-bye.